Would you pray with me? God, because your people are here, you are here. Your presence is here. You dwell among us. As we just sung, we want to share in your love. As you loved your son, make known to us your love to us as your children. As the Spirit loves to do your will, Bring us into that so that we too would love to do your will. We want to hear your voice. We've sung your word to one another. Now as it's preached, please let my voice speak only the truth from your word. Even in the way I speak it, make me speak it in the tone that you would have me to speak so that I would not be a distraction. Give our minds focus, our ears attentiveness, insofar as they can handle today, even with kids or with the distractions of life, or if, if people are sitting at home and it's, it's hard to pay attention on a live stream, please, Lord, give us focus so that we can hear from you and be changed. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Would you open in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's in the New Testament. If you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then you hit 1 Corinthians. So it's right after Romans, right before 2 Corinthians. If you find a 3 Corinthians, you have the wrong Bible in your hands, so... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be looking at verses 31 through chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through the first verse of chapter 11. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When someone says something, generally speaking, they mean something. When someone says something, they mean something. And if you're a good listener, you try to discern, you try to understand what they mean. Let me give you an illustration. A few weeks back, I told my wife, Sarah, I love you. I also have said it since a few weeks back, don't worry. But a particular instance of it I want us to focus in. So I told her, I love you. Now, it's interesting, do you know what I mean by that? That I tell you, I told my wife I love you. Now, you could be saying, I love everything about you, dear, everything. Um, but I meant something by the words, I love you. So let me give you a little context. Um, there's something else I love in life. I love peaches. I really like peaches. Um, and uh, I really love peaches, though, when they're combined with butter and sugar and a pie crust. Peach pie is awesome. And... Uh, a few weeks back, Sarah 
very thoughtfully when she was at the grocery store, picked up some peaches because they're in season and brought them home, let them ripen a few days. And right when they were just right, uh, after putting the kids to bed, so it's about 8, 8.30 at night, she makes me this delightful, it's, it's peach crumble kind of thing. We didn't have pie crust, but it was awesome because there's still the butter and the sugar part. And, it's, and she bakes it. It's like 9.30 at night when this thing's done. And then of course I have to stay up at night and eat the whole thing. But um, after she finishes baking me this peach masterpiece and hands it to me, I tell her, I love you. So what did I mean by that? Right? It's a very common phrase. It's something that a lot of people use. It might be an overused phrase. Um, what did I mean? I meant, I love you, dear, because you thought of me when you were at the grocery store. You thought of me after you put the kids to bed and you're tired and you want to go to bed because you know it's going to be repeating the same stuff you did today. You're going to wake up the kids early, go crazy. I need some sleep. But you thought of me instead of yourself. And because of that, I love you. That's what I meant. And I hope you caught some of that because I do love you, dear. So in our text, chapter, 30, or chapter 10, verse 31, when Paul writes and when God says, do all to the glory of God, what does he mean? He means something. Paul means something. God means something. He didn't put it there on accident. He didn't put it there to mean everything under the sun. You see, popular Bible passages, this is one of those ones that's probably in the top five quoted Bible passages, um, sometimes they can take on a meaning of their own. It might be in how we reference them or simply assuming we know what they mean because we've repeated it so often, we think, oh yeah, well, everybody knows what that means. Um, We can miss the meaning that God has for us. So yes, when Paul says, do all to the glory of God, he means in everything you do, even down to eating and drinking, the little details of life for those regular happenings in life, yes, everything should be done to God's praise. Everything should be done for God's honor. You should draw attention to how awesome God is. But how? How? Does that mean that when I take a bite of a carrot, and I chew it up in my mouth. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Is that what that means? I, I mean, that's, that's an option, right? Or maybe it's as I drink some water, that as I'm drinking, I'm thinking, yes, you are living water, Lord. That, that might be it, but I don't think that God expects me every moment I drink water or every moment of my life that somehow my mind can be thinking at every moment, you are living water. So Paul means something by do all to the glory of God. God means something specific. And we want to understand that. We want to understand how to glorify God. And so to do that, I've put together a guide for us. And I call it the idiot's guide to glorifying God. And yes, that's somewhat humorous, but it's pretty intentional of a title. The idiot's guide to glorifying God. Now you might remember back in the late 90s, these uh, books started coming out, The Complete Idiot's Guide to fill in the blank, or some of them were um, something for dummies. And they were these books, so like topics they would cover would be managing your money, how to write poetry, The Idiot's Guide to Coaching Youth Baseball, everything under the sun. And these books take these uh, big subjects and try to whittle them down into simple, basic how-tos, steps to understand a subject matter. It's kind of like 
Wikipedia before Wikipedia existed, like a hardback version of Wikipedia rather than digital. And so, I'm not calling you and myself, I'm in the category of I needed an, idi- an idiot's guide to glorifying God. I'm not calling us idiots because we're stupid. That's not what I mean by that. I'm saying we need this big, grandiose subject, glorify God. We need to understand how. We need some simplified steps or what does that mean, God? Because we want to do that. You should desire to do that. And that's why Paul has provided us with this guide in these verses. So here is our three-step guide to glorifying God, how we are to live out verse 31. Step one, don't offend anyone. Step one is don't offend anyone. You wanna glorify God? Don't offend anyone. That's in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Now first, when I say don't offend anybody, I don't mean just you, just you. Like you don't offend anybody. Us as Christians don't offend anybody. This is a community project. You see in verse 31, when Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, those yous are plural. This is something that we can lament a lot in our Bibles. In the English language is we don't have a word for you that's plural, right? Like the Texas version is y'all. Um, that's a helpful, or, or maybe up here would be yous guys. I don't know if that works or not. So here's what verse 31 reads like, maybe if you're in Texas. So whether y'all are eating or whether y'all are drinking or whatever y'all are doing, do all to the glory of God. So this is for all of us. This is a lesson for all of us. So yes, you have an individual role in this of glorifying God, but glorifying God has to do with all of us. This also means because we're called not to offend other people, that relationships are opportunities packed with potential to glorify God. So first, we're the ones who are called not to offend, and there are a host of other people we're called not to offend, because I'm saying don't offend anyone, which means in relationships, because that's where offense happens. In relationships, there's unlimited potential, it seems, to glorify God. Let's dig into this further. So verse 32, give no offense. What Paul's talking about here is not offense in everything and anything. He's talking about things rather that regard freedoms, matters of your conscience, not right and wrong in an objective sense, but opinions, or maybe we would use the, the phrase personal convictions. So for instance, in chapters eight through 10, what Paul's been uh, addressing the Corinthian believers about is what they eat and drink. That's why he says, whether you eat or drink in verse 31, and particularly about meat. You see, where in Corinth, there was meat that would sometimes be sold um, in markets as offered to idols. It would be meat that would be used for a sacrifice to another god. And the question was, should you eat it? Um, if, you were, uh, uh, if you go to your friend's house, they offer meat before you, Paul says, eat it. But he says, if they say, as they offer you the meat, this was offered in sacrifice to such and such a God. Paul says, don't eat it so you don't offend their conscience. 
So this is about things that aren't necessarily right and wrong. It's just eating meat. But one person eats meat as unto a God and another person eats meat as just meat. A way that we might be able to relate to this a little bit would be as if uh, some of you have, have visited a Catholic uh, mass and when communion is served, I would assume a lot of us don't take it. Some of you may take it when, when communion, uh, the Eucharist is served at a Catholic mass because from our perspective, what the Catholics are doing is different than what we think communion is. They're, they're, they're treating the bread and the juice or the bread and the wine there as actually somehow becoming the body and blood of Christ. And I don't want to take that, not because I'm offended, but I don't want to offend them, or I don't want to offend somebody else who might hear that I took that. Because I just think it's juice or wine or bread. So these are regarding freedoms. Don't offend in regards to freedoms, personal convictions. So here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. You offend when your personal conviction causes someone to, to stumble, to be harmed, or to be alienated from you. You do this by thinking of your personal convictions as rules rather than freedoms. You insist that another person must adopt how you feel, how you think about things, and you ignore or even intentionally harm another's conscience. So again, since relationships are the opportunities for offense, the home where you're rubbing up against other human beings all the time, you're relating all the time, the home is a place where offense can happen all the time, which also means the home is a place where glorifying God can happen. So think about this, sibling rivalries at home. Most of the time when a brother and a sister, or a brother and a brother, or a sister and a sister are angry at each other or upset or have offended one another, it's not usually because one brother killed someone and the other says that was wrong. No, it's you played with my toy or you do this thing that way or you take too long in the, in the bathroom or you do this and you do this and you do this. These things are just personal conviction and brothers and sisters get mad at each other about those things. Now adults though, we're not any different, right? The things that happen between husband and wife in the home, most of them are not principled moral decisions that we're divided on. It's things of preference, conviction. So the great example, I know this is the marriage example, but it's so true of me, are the dishes, the dishes. So Sarah knows this all too well. I don't know if it might even still be going on. I was gonna reference the, past th the first three years of marriage. We've been married seven years. At least the first three years of marriage, I was dish Nazi in the house. There's a correct way to load the dishwasher. Like, that's a personal conviction. You better believe it. And Sarah felt the weight of that. <laughs> because when she would load the dishwasher, I would offend her. Don't do that. That's not glorifying God. That's offensive. That's offensive to her. And in that moment, you steal glory from God. Every time I'd... I talked to Sarah about how the plates aren't in the right order or the cups are in the wrong places or whatever it may be. I'm stealing glory from God and taking it for myself. I'm saying my conviction is more important. You need to bend to that. For the Corinthian church, here's some of the things they were dealing with. This whole letter, 1 Corinthians, is all about problems of personal conviction in the church. 
So chapters one through four had to do with personality or ministry styles of various pastors. Chapter seven in 1 Corinthians is about uh, various perspectives on marriage and singleness. Which one's better? Should you be married? Should you not be married? Why, this and that? Should you get remarried if your spouse dies? All that kind of, those questions. Paul even gives his own opinion. He says, I think it'd be better if you were like me. Paul wasn't married. But he says, but it's not wrong to be married. That's the right way to handle convictions. Chapter eight through 10 is about food and drink. Chapter 12 through 14 is about worship style and spiritual gifts. That's something, boy, in the church, churches can be at each other's necks. One church that believes the same gospel as another church can offend one another because of how you talk about worship style. When I first came to to Overland Hills about 10 years ago, um, anybody who's been around that long probably knows that I was rather idealistic. These are all understatements I'm making about myself. I had very strong preferences on everything, but when it comes to worship, so whether it be preaching style, the start time of worship, I would be the one that would argue morally, like that it's better to start worship around like 6 a.m., which I don't hold to that anymore. I got kids now. So. But I would say that it's more important to start worship around 6 a.m. because in the Bible, Jesus rose before the sun came up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can, see how you can make your personal conviction and you try to turn the Bible into a way to defend yourself. I'd e- I even got, you can ask John about this. This is how offensive it can be. You can hurt a brother because of this. I offended a brother because I insisted on our ESV Bibles, if you don't know this, there's different publication years because they update them every once in a while based on updates in the English language or updates in the Greek text. Nonetheless, publication years of the ESV Bible. I said that there was a better version of the ESV Bible. That's offensive. (laughs) Who do I think I am? That's what Paul is saying, don't do. That does not glorify God. When I insist that everyone adopts my views, I'm saying that my personal convictions are of more value than others. Therefore, don't offend anyone. Don't be the offense. Don't let your personal convictions become a nagging stone in someone's shoe. Don't be a turnoff to others like that. And Paul says it here, don't be offense, don't be an offense to all kinds of people. So if it's Jews, seemingly Jews that don't believe, Jews to Paul would have been family, people he understood, people that were near, but, but probably more culturally conservative, um, would have more do's and don'ts in their law than others. Don't offend them. The Gentiles, he says, uh, the Greeks, don't offend them. They might be more culturally liberal. They might uh, have more freedoms, but they might be socially and culturally different from you. To Paul, he wasn't, he wasn't raised a Greek, he was raised a Jew. Don't offend them. And yes, friends, in the church of God, maybe mostly in the church of God, don't let this be a place of offense where you insist on your personal convictions and tear down brothers and sisters. Don't offend anyone. Now that's, that's a tall order because boy, do we have convictions. And you should. That's a freedom you're allowed in Christ to have convictions, own them. But why should I go to such lengths 
to not offend. Why? Why? Because of Christ. Paul says it in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse one. He says, don't offend anyone because of this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying, only do this. Don't offend people. Don't offend anyone because that's what Christ is like. So essentially, take on yourself the kindness of Christ. Here are three examples. Matthew 8. So remember, Jesus is a Jew. Matthew 8, a leper comes up to Jesus and asks to be healed. Now, Jesus, a Jew, could easily say, whoa, man, you're unclean. But rather than that, not only does he say be healed, but he reaches out and touches the leper essentially making himself unclean. That's the, that's the length that Christ goes to remove an offense between a Jew and an unclean person. Zacchaeus, Luke 19, a tax collector, someone that pretty much everyone would agree is a sinner, is not pure, It's more on the wicked side of things, only thinking about themselves. Zacchaeus was very intrigued by Jesus. He wanted to come out and see him. And Jesus could say, whoa, you're the tax collector type, not pure and holy, can't have anything to do with you because I'm a Jew. But rather Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house today. We're gonna eat, we're gonna eat together. Even if that bothers other people, that offense that I could have between, it's gone. John four, a Samaritan woman, So Samaritans were essentially enemies to Jews because they were uh, like a mixed race. So when Jews and Gentiles had kids together, that's what the Samaritans were to the Jews. Jesus in John 4 sits down to take a drink at a well and a Samaritan woman comes up. Now also a Samaritan woman who, who had quite a few husbands before that. So this could be like a scandalous woman. And Jesus could say, whoa, not dealing with this. This isn't gonna look good in front of the other Jews. Right, Because first she's an enemy and second they're gonna be talking, what were you doing with that woman? But Jesus rather entertains a very long discussion for her good and builds her up so that she can know him. That's why you don't offend anybody because Christ is in you. If someone is willing to have your kindness, give it to them. If someone is willing to eat a meal with you, do it in peace. If someone though they have radically different convictions than you, if they're willing to talk, don't push on areas of offense. You know what they are. Don't push on those, but rather find the means to be gracious and merciful. So one contemporary offense for us to consider, one area in our lives that is rather polarizing where God tells us, give no offense. One word, masks, right? You know it. Isn't that funny? Six months ago, you say that in a sermon, you people are like, what are you talking about? But masks, talk about maybe, maybe like in the top one or two prime offenses, masks representing COVID precautions in our society right now. This is a place where immediately, even I say the word mask, and you feel this need to have an opinion. And then you feel the need to put a stake down on the ground and say, that's my opinion, I'm not budging. Don't offend anybody with your opinion. Have it, own it, have a conviction and live it out. Don't offend. There's sadly sides to this issue. 
Generally, the two sides go this way. There's one side that's more concerned with personal liberties, economic health, social health. These are good things that we should be concerned about. And so they might end up saying, well, we don't really need to wear masks, or maybe they shouldn't be mandated. Let's open things up more. Um, Maybe we'll have two to three feet of social distancing. Then there's another side that might be more concerned with community or the medical system, physical health and the health of the elderly and the high risk. And so they say, we should wear masks. Some would say, we must regulate it, tell everybody they have to wear a mask and it's a misdemeanor if you don't. Limit openness and six feet or maybe 10 feet of social distancing is better, right? This is an area, you feel it daily. You argue about it at home and you talk about people and say, why do they, da, 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 right? Just this past week, a brother reminded me, now I'm the one who leans a little bit more toward the conservative, like maybe a mask side isn't a bad idea type thing, right? So even now, maybe you dislike me. I don't, don't do it, don't offend me. <laughs> but I lean that way. A brother, a brother reminded me this week, just in how I shared my opinion about that, that I shared it in a very straightforward, ungracious and unwelcoming to other opinions type way that shut down a conversation and made it seem like I am not able to, be, to, to discuss the issue with. I'm not able to work out that issue and, and see what's a way that me, a mask wearer, and him, a non-mask wearer, can do ministry and life together. That's a shame on me. We shouldn't talk about these things in a way that makes people wanna go like, oh, I'm just, I don't wanna hang out with him, I don't wanna deal with him, or we'll just not talk about that thing. That's the offense because in those moments you steal glory from God. So how do we glorify God? Step one, don't offend anyone. Step two, love everyone. That's step two. Step two, love everyone. So don't offend anyone. And essentially the flip side of the same coin, love everyone. This is simple, but we gotta flesh this out to understand what does it mean to glorify God? What is Paul talking about here? Love everyone. Verse 33, he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So he says, I try to please everyone seek their advantage. That's what I mean by love. Try to look out what's good for others. Seek what's best for them, not for yourself. Pleasing everyone does not mean be a flatterer. That doesn't mean that you seek their approval. It doesn't mean you give up on your personal conviction either. Rather, it means you honor others. You accommodate them. You accommodate their opinion. You say, you know, their opinion can exist in a world that I exist in as well you show their worth and dignity in how you talk to them and how you listen to them. You see what can benefit, profit, or do good for them, and you seek that out. At the beginning of of this final section, in verse 23, Paul writes this, talking about these freedoms and how we are to exercise them. He says, all things are lawful. Now, he's not talking about murder or adultery. He's talking about these things that are freedoms we have in Christ. There's all sorts of things that are free for us to choose. I can do this, or I can choose not to do this. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. But not all things build up. 
So what should you do? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's love. These are freedoms we can use or not use. You are not bound to your personal convictions. They are not rules. They're not a law. Just because you have a conviction, if we go back to masks, just because you have a conviction about masks doesn't mean you have to do it, let alone insist on it for everybody else. So think about this meaning you're not bound to freedoms. Think about American freedoms. So I have the right to bear arms. Does that mean I have to go out and buy a gun? No, I don't have to buy a gun, but I have the freedom too if I want, and I have the freedom too if I don't want. Maybe a better one, this is something even in, in uh, uh, society right now that's sometimes worked out well and sometimes not worked out as well. I have the freedom of speech, as we call it. I have the freedom to protest, or I have the freedom to speak on issues that I want to speak on. But I don't have to. There are times to speak up, and you should. There are issues at hand even in the world right now you should speak up. But maybe you don't have to all the time, or maybe even better yet, you can choose which words you're gonna say. It doesn't mean you have to speak everything in your mind. We all know a friend who does that, or we see somebody on the news who does that, and oftentimes they're a turnoff. That's not love. So you think about it in social media, how you use your digital tools. When you're on Facebook or when you're on Twitter or when you're on Instagram or whatever it is, when you're watching the news, do you have to post your opinion about every subject under the sun? Do you have to post it in the most explicit, divisive, don't ask me questions because I already made up my mind kind of way? You don't have to. It's a freedom. You have the right to. What are you going to do with it? When someone posts their opinion on Facebook or someone voices their opinion on the news, do you have to leave a comment? Do you have to reply and let them know how wrong they are? You don't have to. That's a freedom you have. It's a freedom you have. Are you going to use it or not? Maybe better yet, maybe when that person posts the opinion, this is the love side of things, instead of posting your comment or replying hey, by the way, you're totally wrong on that. Let me tell you why I'm right and you're wrong. Maybe you see them post a week later a picture of their family happy out at a picnic. Instead of cursing their family in your heart because you know their opinion on fill-in-the-blank matter, maybe you write, hey, I'm so glad you guys had a great day. That's love. It seeks the advantage of another. It seeks to please others and not make big deals out of things that divide. Love is a community project. So we're back to thinking about all the y'all nature of this text, that whether y'all eat or drink, y'all better do it to the glory of God. When we're, we, sorry, we collectively are called to love everyone. This is something that we must learn together as a church. It's not surprising that in a church in Corinth, that had so many issues regarding personal convictions and how people rubbed up against one another with those, and there was division in the church, that only a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 13, is a chapter all about love. What is love like? How do you love? Corinth needed that. I'll tell you what, churches in America, a country that really loves their freedoms, both to our gain and to our fault, Churches in America need to hear about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does, love does not insist on its own way. So if you're called to love, don't insist on your own way. Don't insist that people have to adopt everything you think. That's not love. And if you have no love, there is no glory. So therefore, Christian, love everyone. That's what Paul is calling for here. He says, that of many. He says, I'm seeking the advantage of many. I'm seeking to please everyone. Every opportunity, every interaction with another human being is an opportunity to love people and therefore glorify God. Now, what's cool about this love and what's unique about this love, because yes, in the world, there are plenty of people who aren't Christians who do have uh, the ability to not speak their mind and they don't share their opinion with everybody and they even lay down their opinion sometimes and, and in love, look after others. But the unique nature of Christian love is the end of verse 32 or 33. Try to please everybody. Seek their advantage that they may be saved. Non-Christians don't care about that. This should be our driving factor for love is that they may be saved, that they would know God, that they would know who the God who is love, that in your loving them, that they would experience God, that they would come to have life, that they'd be set free from sin and, and death and the bondage to that, that they may be saved, that they would be free, saved, delivered is another way you could put that, that they would be delivered from their insistence on their personal convictions, do you know before you were a Christian, you were bound to whatever convictions you thought in your mind because sin's corrupting the way you think. But now that you are a Christian, you are free. For freedom, Christ set us free, the Bible says. Don't you want others to have that? Don't you want others to have the freedom to be free from, from being a slave to selfish thinking, from being a slave to honoring yourself, from being a slave to someone who creates conflict all the time? That's the aim of Christian love. So when you seek another's good, you're really seeking God's glory. That's what Paul's saying right here. When you seek another's good, you are seeking God's glory. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't you want people to, to know God? Don't, they, don't you want people to give glory to God, to have that enjoyment, just like we sang earlier, even right now as we hear God's word and we just get to enjoy knowing God and praising him together. Don't you want others to be in on that? Love them to that end. So every time in a conversation where you're dying to speak your mind on an issue and you choose not to because you love a person, because you've been loved by Christ, you glorify God. Every time you withhold from saying something you know will offend another person, matters of conviction, when you withhold from doing that because you love the person, because you've been loved by Christ, 
you glorify God. Every time you do something kind for someone, you know has a different conviction than you. That's some of the toughest stuff. When you're like, ah, they just got it all wrong. And when you go and do something kind for them in love, because you've been loved by Christ, you glorify God. Now, if not offending people was hard enough, loving everyone is even harder because now you actually got to take action. Not offending, you could say, I can get on board with that because I'll just shut up, right? Just keep my mouth shut. Then I don't offend anybody, right? And ironically, you'll probably offend somebody by keeping your mouth shut. Nonetheless, God calls us to actively love. This is costly. This is difficult. And you can think through all the people you know in your life, you right now that you know you butt heads with on issues, and you're thinking loving them is not easy. Why should I go to the lengths to love them? Because of Christ. Again, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ is the ultimate lover. He loved everyone. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Get on mission with Jesus in your love, seek to save. Romans 15, two to three, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? Why? Should I just please my neighbor because God said so? Or because that's a nice thing? No, not because God said so, it's a nice thing. Romans 15, three, Christ did not please himself. That's the reason why, because Christ did not please himself. Don't live a life pleasing yourself. Take on Christ in all of your actions. Hebrews 1, three, when people see Christ, people see the glory of God. If Christ is in you, in your love, people will see the glory of God. Because Hebrews 1, three says this, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Oh, it's such a delight when you get to put Christ on display to others because in that moment, you help them to see glory. You're inviting them in to see glory. How was that glory displayed in Christ? How was the glory of God displayed in Christ? It was through him taking on the form of a servant. I don't know a better text to go to than Philippians 2. Verses three to eight. Pay close attention to what Christ's love was like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Glorifying God means dying. <laughs> Glorifying God means dying. Dying to self. Living in Christ. It is costly. 
But boy, the gain is worth it. So here's where the rubber meets the road. It's in the situations that you're called to die that that most often you're going to be challenged to glorify God. It's in the situations where you're gonna be called to die to yourself that you're gonna be called to love someone else who's different than you. These situations can be scary. They can be difficult. They can be really uncomfortable. So let's think about another contemporary issue. Divide the church one more time. But love one another. Don't let this get to you. So let's say that you are not the biggest fan of our president right now. Maybe it's his issues, like the policies, or maybe it's his personality or something else or all the above. Maybe you're not the biggest fan. But your neighbor proudly flies this giant flag above his house that says Trump 2020. And every time you see it, you're like, oh, dude. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna glorify God? Now, what that looks like for you, I don't know, but maybe here's an idea. Maybe instead of cursing him in your heart until finally 2020 or 2024 comes along, Maybe you walk over to his house, her house, say, hi, my name's Bobby, or your name. What's your name? And, and you just talk with them and you listen to them. And if they give you a 30-minute speech of why Trump's the best president ever, you listen and say thank you for that and you don't make an issue out of it. You don't tell them why they're an idiot for thinking that and why you're right and they're wrong. It's not love. Maybe instead you draw their mind away from something that's gotten them so captive to something bigger, loving one another and the glory of God. This goes the other way. Maybe somebody still has their Hillary bumper sticker or a Biden bumper sticker. Maybe they fly a certain sports flag above their, their, uh, uh, their house on the bumper sticker thing, or maybe they have coexist t-shirts. Whatever the issue may be, we all have our things where we're like, yeah, I can get on board with that or I don't get on board with that or I don't really care. Whatever it may be, are you ready to engage with that person for the glory of God? Are you ready to go past the issue that just creates conflict to love them? So how do you glorify God? Step one, don't offend anyone. Step two, love everyone. Step three, repeat steps one and two without ceasing. Repeat steps one and two without ceasing. I'm only saying that because that's what the Bible says. This is what your life is. This is what you signed up for essentially when you became a Christian, a life glorifying God. It's a really satisfying life, I'm telling you. Paul says this, verse 31, whatever you do, that means do this all the time. He says, do all. What fits under the category of all? Everything. He says in verse 33, Do this towards everyone. This is where Jesus challenged um, the religious elites in his Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I tell you, yeah, love your friends and love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do this toward everyone in everything you do. Love everyone without ceasing. Now you gotta think about this in a positive light because you might be thinking, oh, this is hard. Why did I become a Christian? That's not the attitude to think. You should think, I know why I became a Christian. This is the most satisfying thing in the world. I get to extend the love I've experienced from God to others. 
Your life is chocked full of potential to glorify God by loving others. Whether you're home or away, work, school, church, with your neighbors, you're online, you're offline, on the phone, at the store, even in your own thought life, you're filled with opportunities to glorify God by loving others through self-sacrifice. So remember, your personal convictions are freedoms. They are not laws that bind. Remember this, friends, the world is bound. You've been set free. You know what freedom means. But people are still enslaved. They're enslaved to sin. Therefore, they easily make their opinions and their perspectives rules that you must adhere to. You felt it when somebody else says, you gotta think like me. You gotta believe what I believe. You need to say what I say. And if not, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's what it's like if you're bound to your personal convictions. But you're free and you are bound to one thing. Think about this. This is what freedom means. You're still bound, but you're bound to one thing. You are bound to Christ. You're bound to Christ. That's it. Therefore, in everything you do, live a life that radically shows the love of Christ as the only thing that controls you. Die to yourself, live to God. When you value other people, especially others who think different than you, you are saying that you value Christ. When you value them in love, you're saying, I value Christ. Because Christ has valued you. He laid his life down for you while you were his enemy, while you're shaking your fist at him, while you have all these personal convictions about life and God, and God, why don't you run the world in this way? That's the time when Christ loved you. Won't you extend the grace to someone else? When you seek to live like Christ, you're telling the world that what you find most valuable is God's glory. So when someone says something, they mean something. And when God says, do all to the glory of God, he means something. God intends for you to understand the life-changing, all-encompassing, self-denying, other-centered, Christ-filled meaning of the phrase, do all to the glory of God. In wanting you to know that phrase, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? In God wanting you to know that, he wants you to know Christ. What could be better? There is no loss in a life lived to the glory of God. There is no loss in spending yourself to love others. There's only gain. You gain a brother, a sister, a friend. You gain praise and honor for God. And above all, you gain Christ. In walking in Christ, you come to know him more nearly. You experience him and you get to show him off to others. Therefore, therefore, whatever you do, do all in imitation of Christ. Whatever you do, do all in love for others. And so, as it's written, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Take our lives, Lord. Let them be consecrated to you, only you. We are living sacrifices in your hands. So transform us to be like Jesus. Thank you for setting us free from sin. Thank you for setting us free from ourselves. Please, Lord, turn us into vessels of mercy to one another in the church and those outside the church so that your glory would be seen and savored everywhere. In Christ's name, amen.